Well, I just want to tell everybody this Easter morning how much we miss everyone. Um, this is not a normal Easter Sunday by any stretch of the imagination. And we're thankful for those who have been able to come and help us with Chris and Terrence and uh, also Antonio and, and David to help us do this. I want to assure you we're adhering to all the social distance requirements from public health. So I get to preach to um, a few men wearing masks here this morning. And so I just want to call on you as the people of God. Let's be in prayer that the Lord uh, will give us patience, that he'll enable us to walk through and learn what he's teaching us through what is happening in our world. But at the same time, let us pray to the Lord that he will soon find a way for us to be together, worshiping uh, together as a congregation, as a local church, where we're able to sing together and pray together and praise the Lord together and hear his word together. And certainly one of the things we can do is to be grateful for what we have received in days past, um, remembering also to pray for the many people in our world at this time who are suffering and facing great difficulty and duress, to remember to pray for them that the light of the gospel will be theirs as well. Well, this morning, as we've mentioned several times, is Easter Sunday. And as I've said, it does seem like a bit of an odd Easter Sunday, probably a first uh, for many of us and for many of you. And it's one which few of us are likely to forget for the rest of our lives. This will be something I'm sure our children are going to remember for the rest of their lives. For whether you consider Easter a day to go to church or a day to chase chocolate eggs with the Easter bunny, certainly um, chocolate eggs are one of my favorite. But regardless of what path you choose for Christians and pagans alike, Easter has always been a celebration of new life. But in a COVID-19 world where we are surrounded everywhere, as has been mentioned, by the shadow and the sorrow of separation and isolation and disease and death, a celebration of new life certainly seems to be a little bit out of step and out of place. And some would maybe even say naive and ridiculous. But as we come to God's word, The Lord himself shows us that a sober Easter Sunday morning shrouded shrouded by the shadow of pain and human loss and human separation and human death. In actual fact, this is much closer to the first Easter Sunday and to the message of that first Easter Sunday far more so than perhaps many of the Easter Sundays that we have celebrated in recent past. And this is because the testimony of God's Word is that without death, without separation, and without the brutal and ugly and unjust death of the Holy Son of God, 
without Christ's death on a Roman cross, Easter is indeed naive and ridiculous and meaningless and pointless. And try as much as we do to think and live and believe otherwise. And quite frankly, it's something we do on a regular basis until a major event like the coronavirus comes in and disrupts our lives. Until our sports are taken away from us, until our entertainment is taken away from us, until our civil liberties, quite frankly, are taken away from us, and until the opportunity to be with those we love, when that is taken away from us, until these things are gone, Our propensity is to think that this, as Peter's alluded to before, that these things are all there is to this world. And when these things are taken away from us, typically we're devastated. And to some degree we should be devastated. And we do have to be mindful for the many people around the world who either have loved ones who are in ICUs or have lost loved ones either now or in the past, and we need to weep with them, and we need to be burdened for them. To some degree, as we come back to Luke and we come to God's Word, God begins to show us until we can begin to appreciate what true loss and true life is, we can't begin to understand what God is doing on the cross and what God desires for His creation and for his children. Without Jesus Christ, without his sorrow, without his suffering, and without his sacrifice on the cross and obedience to God's word, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no end to the evil of this world. There is no reconciliation with God. There is no resurrection. And there is no new life to celebrate. All we are left with are chocolate eggs and Easter bunnies. But with the cross of Christ, there comes a new light and a life that overcomes the darkest of times, the darkest of places, and the darkest of hearts. And this, brothers and sisters, is the good news of God's Word. This is the light and life we celebrate at Easter. The light and life of the cross. And this morning, it's our joy to behold that light and life through the testimony of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 23? And we're going to go to Luke 23, verse 32. Before we come and read this, I'll just bring you, let's say, up to speed and give you a bit of the context, the Gospel of Luke, as you know, was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, working in and through the mind and hand of Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke was the first century Gentile physician who was Paul's missionary travel companion. He traveled with the Apostle Paul on many of his missionary journeys throughout Asia Minor. And Luke's Gospel, like all the Gospels, and like all of Scripture, devotes most of its words to preparing us for death. To preparing us, very specifically, for the death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the time we get to this chapter, chapter 23, Luke has spent the previous 14 chapters documenting Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. And in chapter 22, Luke documents Jesus' final preparation of his disciples for the cross. And in chapter 3, Luke documents Jesus' preparation of the world for the cross. Even as Jesus is publicly tried by both Herod and Pilate, Pilate the Roman governor of Judea, and then Jesus is publicly and unjustly condemned to death to die by Roman crucifixion. You'll recall that Roman crucifixion is and was a brutal and humiliating form of public execution, typically reserved for the worst of the worst, for slaves and rebels, where the condemned, after being brutally flogged and beaten, were publicly nailed and hung to die on a wooden cross beam in front of crowds and in front of people who were being warned that this would happen to them should they follow the same path. That during its reign over Judea, Rome had crucified thousands of Jews. This was not a one-and-done occurrence. In 4 BC, 2,000 Jews in the area of Galilee were crucified. And allegedly, there were seasons and times where they ran out of wood and space to crucify all the people that Rome desired to put to death in this brutal and humiliating way. But this crucifixion, as we shall see, as Luke shows us, is no ordinary Roman crucifixion. And it is because this is no ordinary man. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 23, verse 32. And we pick up where Peter left off earlier this morning. The crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And that's with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged, railed or blasphemed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. These words seemed to them an idle tale. and They did not believe them. But Peter rose. and He ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there are events in our history and in our lives that seem to change everything. Where life as we know it is brought to a grinding halt and the lives we live are turned upside down. And where life afterwards is never the same. And certainly we are living in those times. And we're living through one of those events right now, courtesy of COVID-19. But as we listen to these God-breathed words, there is one life-changing event that infinitely surpasses all others, both magnitude and meaning. And that life-changing event is the historic death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And from the beginning, Luke shows us Jesus' crucifixion is no 
myth or made-up story. His crucifixion is a very, very public execution that is witnessed not by a few, but by many. And not just by people who are sympathetic to Jesus' cause, but many who hate him. And to this day, in addition to the Gospels, there remains several 1st and 2nd century historical accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. And that includes one by the Jewish historian Josephus in the 1st century A.D., and also another by a Roman senator named Tacitus, who wrote both in the 1st century and 2nd century A.D. and wrote his Chronicles for Rome in 114 A.D., documenting an account and a verification from an unsympathetic source of the historical crucifixion and death of Jesus of Nazareth. But in chapter 23, Luke shows us, not by accident, the whole world is not just watching Jesus being crucified. The whole world is publicly participating in the condemnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of Luke by God's design and according to his word is that Jesus' crucifixion involves and affects everyone. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. The cross of Christ involves everyone. I'm going to ask our AV team to help me with my slides this morning since I don't have access to the remote control. The cross of Christ involves everyone. In the previous chapter, Luke shows the world gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, or having gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Diaspora Jews, Jews from all around the world, and many different nations and many different tongues have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Herod is present. Herod the Tetrarch is present in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Pilate is present. The Roman governor of Judea is present along with a cohort of soldiers to make sure that there is no unrest. And perhaps there have been some rumblings or anticipation that this Passover feast would be different from other Passover feasts. But the world has come and the world has gathered and God has sovereignly brought them together in Jerusalem for this time and for this moment. And in chapter 23, Luke makes it clear, Jesus' crucifixion is very intentionally a public condemnation of the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus of Nazareth. A very intentional and public condemnation, not by a few, but by everyone. And from Pontius Pilate, through to the crowds in Jerusalem, Jesus is being brought from Pontius Pilate's praetorium or the place that he's being judged or Pontius Pilate's residence while he stays in Jerusalem. And he is brought through the streets of Jerusalem being led like an animal or a slave by Roman soldiers. He's being led to a promontory or a hill outside the city walls called the skull or an Aramaic Golgotha. The idea is outside the walls because it probably would not have been sacred or allowed for inside the walls of Jerusalem, allegedly a holy city, there is a stone promontory, a place that is elevated where everyone can see who is being 
crucified. This is not being done in the shadows. This is very public and intended to be witnessed by everyone. And it is there before everyone, high and lifted up, for all to see his suffering and shame as a publicly condemned criminal, that Jesus is nailed and hung on a cross by Roman soldiers. And this is done with two other criminals, one on either side. And this is meant as a very clear and intentional message, with Jesus having the prime spot in the center between two other criminals. The Greek word that's used that Luke uses here, which is a little different from the other Gospels, the Greek word Luke uses for criminal, here is not referring to a bank robber or a drug dealer or some form of petty theft. The word literally means evil doer, evil doer or worker of evil. And it refers to someone whose life and work merits only the cruelest of deaths from both God and man. This is the sort of person everyone in the crowds would have spat upon. This is the sort of person that everyone in the crowds would have cheered. That they were being dragged and taken to a humiliating and brutal and ugly and most painful of deaths that the Roman Empire could conceive of. Brothers and sisters, this was the environment and the place and the scene and the setting. And this was very clearly Rome's intention, and not only Rome's intention, but also the Jewish ruler's intention for the crucifixion of Jesus. For Romans, crucifixion was a brutal humiliation in which most Roman citizens would not, or most Roman citizens who were involved in a crime would have been given the privilege to be decapitated. We believe that's probably what happened to the Apostle Paul. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. But for the Jews, crucifixion was considered to be a defilement. And it goes back to the words in Deuteronomy where someone who is hung on the tree is considered to be cursed by God. And very clearly that is one of the reasons why the the Jewish leaders have lobbied so hard for Jesus to be crucified and not stoned to death as the law typically prescribes. As we consider what Jesus is being subjected to. As we consider how many people were present. We consider how no one, even the crowds who were silent, protested. God, through these words, shows us and chose the world, that everyone was represented and everyone was involved and everyone participated in the crucifixion of Jesus as a condemned evil doer. This was the crown of condemnation that the world gave to Jesus. And this was the crown that Jesus willingly wore. And in exchange, Jesus, in verse 34 offers only one desire and one plea. And it's a desire and plea that sets Jesus apart from everyone and everything in this fallen world. Jesus said, verse 34, Father, 
forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the Roman soldiers gamble at Jesus' feet, trying to grasp a piece of his garment. Jesus' dying desire is not for himself. His dying desire is for the forgiveness of God the Father for everyone who is involved in his crucifixion. With these words, Jesus shows he is not dying for what he has done. He is dying for what we all do against the Son of God, against the Spirit of God, against the Father, against His Holy Father. And it's with these words Jesus shows who really stands condemned and who really is in need of saving. This brings us to our second point for this morning. At the cross, the world blindly mocks and scoffs, but Jesus humbly saves. At the cross, the world blindly mocks and scoffs, but Jesus humbly saves. In verses 35 through 43, Luke shows us the world that is gathered to watch Jesus die. He walks us through everyone who is present at Jesus' crucifixion. And there are the people or the crowds who stand and watch silently and without protest, waiting to see how Jesus' life will end. But also present are the religious rulers, the Roman soldiers, and the criminals who are being crucified on either side of Jesus. And these last group of people are all together celebrating the end of Jesus' message, His ministry, and His person. And they do so by mocking and scoffing. And as they mock and scoff, they do so with a common voice as you read their scoffing. There are recurrent themes and recurrent words that come up over and over and over again by all parties. And it's interesting to notice, regardless of the differences in their power and their privileges, the rich religious rulers the law-abiding citizens, the Roman soldiers, and the lawbreakers, the criminals. Together they share a common voice and they share a common heart. And that is because mockers and scoffers, regardless of their power and privilege, always share a common heart. And it is the heart of pride and contempt. And the target of their pride and contempt, not by accident, is the gospel the good news of God's word. The rulers, the soldiers, the criminals, they all mock three things. And as you look through their mockery and their scoffing, you're going to see three things that come up over and over again in each of them. They mock the kingship of Jesus, they mock the word of Jesus, and they mock the salvation promised by Jesus. They mock the kingship of Jesus, the word of Jesus, and the salvation promised by Jesus. Verse 35, the religious rulers, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And then in verse 37, the soldiers say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
And then in verse 39, the criminals, or at least one, <clears throat> are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And with these words, they mock Jesus' kingship, they mock his word, and they mock the salvation that he has promised and proclaimed that he has come to bring. Together, the Jews and Gentiles, educated and ignorant, rich and poor, with one voice, they do what the world does best, and what the world has always delighted in. From the serpent in the garden, the passive-aggressive comments online, mockers and scoffers pride themselves in standing over and passing judgment in pouring contempt on the authority of God, on the Word of God, and on the work of God. They do so always by mocking and belittling the one whom God has chosen to bear His authority, the one whom God has chosen to proclaim His Word, the one whom God has chosen to do His work of salvation for mankind. And in verses 40 through 41, God uses the humble question and confession of a dying criminal to rebuke the world. Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? And of course, this is one criminal speaking to the other criminal. But in a sense, he's speaking to all who mock Jesus. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Having acknowledged his own guilt, by faith this criminal does what mockers and scoffers refuse to do. He turns to Jesus and he asks Jesus, for a grace that he does not deserve. Brothers and sisters, what is it that sets apart the saints? What is it that makes a believer a believer? What is it that makes someone a true disciple of Jesus Christ? We tell our boys this all the time. It is not a perfect life by any stretch of the imagination. Many times it's far from that. It's not a perfect knowledge of seminary textbooks. Not a perfect education. And it's certainly not going to church or spending time with Christians. The Lord here shows us the simple question and last words of a dying criminal what it is that sets apart a true believer from a false believer. The work of the Spirit in the face of the cross giving a humble confession, an acknowledgement of personal guilt that we deserve to be on the cross, that we are the ones who are justly condemned. But instead, one who is innocent stands next to us. The gift of the Spirit and the gift of faith allows a broken sinner and a horrible person to turn to the only one who can save us by faith ask for a grace that we do not deserve. And in response, 
What does Jesus do? This criminal on the cross asks the question or asks, makes the request, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here the, the criminal on the cross does not put a limit or a time frame on when that is going to happen. Jesus, do it now. Jesus, set me free from sin now. Jesus, get me off the cross now. Jesus, end this difficulty and this pain and sorrow now. Not this criminal. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And with these words, Jesus shows the holy love of God. He did not come to heal the healthy or the righteous. He came to save sinners. And he did not come to save himself. And this is something that the mockers cannot see. Their mocking is always, Jesus, save yourself. Jesus, save yourself. You think you're so hot. You think you're the king. You said you're the son of God. You said you have favor. You said you're the chosen one. Save yourself. Because that's exactly what they would do. And that's what the world does. The world lives to save itself. The world earns and gets careers and earns money and succeeds and pushes other people out of the way and kills other people to save themselves. With these words, as Jesus speaks to the criminal on the cross, and as he saves this criminal on the cross, Jesus shows he did not come to save himself. He came by the authority of God the Father. He came by the power of the Spirit. He came according to God's Word. Not to save Himself. He came to save us from the wrath and condemnation we justly deserve by dying in our place, by bearing our shame and condemnation so that one day we might live with Him in the presence of God forever. With these words, Jesus shows this dying man in us, the cross is not the end. And in verse 44 through 49, this gospel truth is publicly affirmed by God himself, by a supernatural darkness, and by a tearing of the temple curtain. And with Jesus, entrusting his spirit to his Father with his final breath all of which is witnessed by the crowds, the disciples, and a Roman centurion, who after seeing all this, can only utter the words that here was an innocent man. Certainly, verse 47, this man was innocent. Then, in verses 50 through 56, Luke proceeds to document the public witness of the burial of Jesus' dead body which is taken down with Pilate's permission by Joseph of Arimathea. At this point in time, the disciples have fled and they are hiding. At this time, the crowds have gone away shaken and disturbed. At this time, even the religious rulers have left the scene. But Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus and a member of the Sanhedrin, 
who did not give consent to Jesus' crucifixion, appears before Pilate and requests the body of Jesus to show the final respects and to provide the burial of a righteous man in a wealthy man's tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea wraps Jesus' dead body in a linen shroud, as was the custom for a religious burial in keeping with the law. And then he lays Jesus' dead body in a new stone tomb. And following and watching and witnessing both the tomb and also how Jesus' body is cared for and where it was laid are the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee. Having witnessed Jesus' death on the cross and convinced that this is indeed the end of the one that they love, their desire at the end here of chapter 23 The desire of these women is simply to complete the proper and final care for Jesus' dead corpse according to the law. And as a final gesture of love and respect, their desire is to embalm Jesus' body with spices and ointment. But their preparation is cut short by the Sabbath. And as God will soon show them, Jesus' death indeed is not the end. And that brings us to our final point for this morning. The cross of Christ is not the bitter end. The cross of Christ is not the bitter end. As we come to the end of Luke 23, the whirlwind of events surrounding the crucifixion and burial of Jesus comes to a grinding halt. And it's not by accident it comes to a grinding halt with the arrival of the Sabbath, the celebration of God's rest from His life-giving work. But on the first day of the week which is now called Sunday, but more accurately, the Lord's Day. At early dawn, the female followers of Jesus return in their minds to finish some business. They return to Jesus' tomb to complete the final care and embalming of Jesus' dead body that was interrupted by the arrival of the Sabbath. But as they arrive at the tomb, nothing goes as expected. Nothing is as expected. First, they find the stone that they had seen sealed at Jesus' tomb rolled away. And then, upon entering the tomb, they cannot find Jesus' body where it was left, wrapped in linen and wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in all likelihood on an elevated plane of stone. Understandably, these ladies, as we come to Luke's passage here in verse 2 and 3, leading up to verse 4, understandably, as they come in and they are unable to find the body where they last saw it laid and where the body was sealed in by this stone, they are perplexed. They are lost. Literally, from the word used for perplexed here, they are unable to move forward. They are stuck or frozen in place. Physically, emotionally, and mentally, they are unable to move forward. Verse 4 explains to us very specifically the reason why they are lost and why they are stuck. It says, verse 4, they were perplexed about this. And very specifically, this refers to 
their inability to find the body of the Lord Jesus in this stone tomb. In a world where dead bodies can only rot and turn to dust where they are left. In a world where loved ones can only mourn and sorrow and embalm dead corpses or burn them or bury them. What these ladies see, this empty tomb, is neither natural nor is it normal. It is beyond human comprehension It is beyond human explanation, and it is beyond human reason. And like us, the help these women so desperately need to find and follow Jesus, God graciously gives. He gives it as he always does. He gives it through his word. And in verse 5 through 7, in the absence of Jesus, the Lord sends two men in white dazzling apparel, angels, supernatural beings, to speak to these women and to give them the word of the Lord. And if you look at the words they give them, they are very specific and they are given as a reminder. Verse 5, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember, It's a command. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. Here in the very beginning, what the word of the Lord does for these women is it questions what they are doing. How good is God to give us his word to question us in what we are doing? Why do you seek the living among the dead? And the Lord himself through his word points to the reason for their confusion. They're not thinking rightly. They're not living rightly. They're not pursuing things rightly because they're pursuing the old world order. And they're making assumptions People live, people die, people are buried, they are no more. We weep, we sorrow, and every year we gather around to celebrate the memory of this person and remember the good times that were. That's what we do with ordinary people, and that's what we do with ordinary lives. And that's all we have in this world, brothers and sisters. And we need to weep and mourn with so many people in this world recently, who are mourning the loss of loved ones. Loved ones who, for many, they may never see again. But here the Lord is showing these ladies, these ladies who have seen and witnessed and probably handled Jesus' dead body. You're thinking about this all wrong. And in fact, because of it, you are in the wrong place. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. As we read the rest of Luke and we read Acts, we realize that they don't really quite comprehend what is going on here. But then the Lord brings them home with a command. And His command is to remember the words of Jesus. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must 
divine necessity, be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And he must on the third day rise. The reason they cannot find Jesus is they are in the wrong place. And they are in the wrong place because they have forgotten Jesus' words. Jesus is not a dead man resting among dead people. He is the Son of God, the Holy Son of God, who has come and died for us so that we might live with Him even as He lives, not with the dead, but among the living. Brothers and sisters, how often do we end up in the wrong place in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our churches, because we are led by our eyes and we are led by our experience and we are led by our reason and we are led by a world of dying people living with other dying people. How often do we end up in the wrong place because we fail to remember the words that Jesus has spoken to us? How often, brothers and sisters, do we end up in the wrong place because we forget that Jesus is not among the dead. He is the Holy Son of God. And He is not with the dead, but with the living. These words remind us this was God's plan all along. That the cross would never be the bitter end, even as the Roman soldiers, even as the scribes and Pharisees, and even as one criminal mocked and scoffed at Jesus. Instead, the cross, by God's design, was a marvelous beginning for all those who the Lord would save. It was the beginning of something completely new and something that would change everything and turn the world right side up. Part of the point I believe that Luke is making, not just here on these pages, but to Christians from every generation and every era. The world was never meant to be a place where people lived apart from God, where they died apart from God and spent eternity apart from God. God's design from the beginning was a world and a creation that was holy and that wholly experienced His love and would live with Him for eternity. But our sin changed that. But the good news of the gospel is that we who deserve the condemnation of the cross, we who deserve the judgment of the Lord, for us, God sent His Son to die on the cross in our place and to bear the shame and humiliation and the judgment and wrath of God. The Christ, His Son, He gave this so that we too might not spend eternity or the rest of our lives with the dead, but that we might be with Jesus, that we might be with the living, and that our worlds 
would not be upside down, but right side up. The tragedy, brothers and sisters, the tragedy so often, so often in the church and so often in this world, whether we're at a church or a Bible study or wherever else, is that we continue to live these lives that are upside down. The normal expectation is life will always get worse and the best we can live for are the things of today. And then when those things are taken away from, our hearts are broken and we sorrow, whether it be a career, whether it be our entertainment, whether it be our friends. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be sad in the loss of those things. But there are times, just like these ladies who are following Jesus, where the Lord takes things away from us. And He allows us to come to the end of ourselves. And He allows us to come to an empty tomb to realize the things we've been looking for are the wrong things. That the Lord has something so much better for us. And that better is with the living and with Jesus. Not with the things of the dead. The life that the Lord has given us, courtesy of the cross... It's a life that is meant to be full of Christ, full of His light and full of His life. A light and a life that is set apart from the dying things of this world. But a friend of mine who had been through many difficult things, one Sunday morning he was coming in to church and he had a frown on his face And I would say, understandably, a frown on his face. He had had a cardiac valve replacement. He had had blood clots. He had had pneumonia. He had had a rough life. And I'm sure during that Sunday morning, he was walking to church in physical pain. But another brother came up to him, and he said to him, jesting, he said, brother, do you believe in the resurrection? My friend, I believe, just grunted an affirmation, yes, I do. I mean, who doesn't believe in the resurrection on the way to church? And this other friend said to my friend, have you let your face and your smile know that Jesus has indeed risen from the grave? Now that may seem to some degree a little bit harsh, But these two men knew each other. And I think to some extent it was being done in love to help this brother focus not on the pain at hand which he was actively suffering, but to give him and reorient his eyes to the glory that we have a Savior who is alive. We have a Savior who is is present. We have a Savior who is worth living for. And that life doesn't Begin, brothers and sisters, pie in the sky on the other side of the grave. It is here now. And God has meant for us to find it. And brothers and sisters, that's why he has given us the testimony of his word. And that's why he calls us to remember not the things of this world that we cling to so tightly. But to remember, as Ted reminded us earlier this morning, of the promises of God, which God always keeps. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came and died on the cross and bore our sin and condemnation so that we would not be with the dead, but that we would be with the living. And the living, brothers and sisters, is no one else but Jesus Christ 
our Lord. And when this is, brothers and sisters, our reality, we of all people, regardless of the darkness or the circumstance or the difficulty or adversity, we have every reason to rejoice. And this, brothers and sisters, was why the Apostle Paul rejoiced while in prison. And this, brothers and sisters, is why over the history of the church, saints in adverse and difficult circumstances, in disease, enslavement, in brutal affliction, were able to rejoice. Because they saw not with the eyes of dying men, but they saw with the eyes of faith, like Stephen did, a Savior who is alive and present and is interceding on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, my desire for you this Easter is that this would be the life that we live. Let me close with this final thought. For those of you who enjoy pagan celebrations of having your children search for hidden Easter eggs and pieces of chocolate, my one recommendation is make it bittersweet. But for those who have partaken in that, and I speak only of this as a pastor who's been told this by others, you know that what a loving parent will do is they will get up early in the morning and spend time hiding things in a field, good gifts that they intend their children to find. And you will know as the day begins, and as that Easter egg hunt begins, that there are some children who have never searched for an Easter egg before. And so they sit there at two or three years old, and they look at the flowers, and they pick at the little pieces of, of clover, and they look at their parents all gaggly-eyed, not sure what's going on, while the other children are running as if their lives depended on it. You know, as that day goes on, some of the children will grab two or three different eggs and they'll be all excited and some will stop. And they'll eat that piece of chocolate and figure this is it. This is the best that life has. But you'll see one or two parents who know that the best eggs are still out there and their children have not found them. And they will stand there and they will speak to their children and they will nudge. And after a while, they'll give hints. And sometimes they'll even go over and stand by a bush. And they'll wink and nudge. And finally, as the day goes long, and sometimes some children are being discouraged, finally a parent will come and say, look over there. Now I know this is a broken illustration and distorted. But it's a shadow of our Heavenly Father and what He does for us. Because through his word, what he does for us is he tells us he is not content until we find the best gift that he has given. A given gift. A gift of grace. A gift that we did not deserve or earn. And quite frankly, a gift that we could never find on our own. But a gift that he himself helps his children find through his word. Brothers and sisters, the Lord will not stop. Have you found the gift that he has given to us through the cross of Christ and that he points to us through his word? Are you living a life of Christ's life and light? May that be our reality in the days to come. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a gracious Savior you are. 
Heavenly Father, what a loving Father you are. Spirit of God, what a great encourager you are to come alongside. We confess we are not able to see you, Lord Jesus, or find you because the propensity of our heart so often is to look for you where our eyes lead. To look for you where our reason leads. To look for you where our experience leads. And ultimately, the things of our heart lead us to things of death. Lord Jesus, Spirit of God, Father, give us the help we need. Help us to remember your words. Guide us and lead us. That through the cross, we might enjoy the life you died to give us. That we might live with the living not the dead. In your name we pray.